0: If you're looking to improve your leadership in a measurable way, go to transformativeprinciple.org mastermind to see if you qualify to join a group of like-minded people who are ready to be the best principals in the country. Well, you are in for a treat today. We are going to talk with Jessica Leahy, the author of The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, and this is just a great conversation. I've been excited to talk to her for quite some time and this is just awesome. So I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening to The Transformative Principle and please uh, share this with somebody who needs some help allowing other people to fail and can see the value in doing that and the lessons that people can learn from that. So without further ado, here's the interview with Jessica Leahy. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am so excited to have Jess Leahy on the podcast today. She is the author of The Gift of Failure and also the host of the podcast hashtag AmWriting with KJ Delantonio and I'm really excited to have Jess on the podcast today. Jess, thank you so much for being here and for talking to my listeners about the gift of failure.
1: You're so welcome. And you actually neglected one little part of my bio that's the thing I'm most proud of, which is that I am still currently a teacher.
0: Thank you. I apologize for neglecting <laughs> no, that.
1: <laughs> no, that's fine. It's just, it, it gets lost in there. But it for me, it's one of the most, it is the most important thing I do, I think.
0: Well, that's awesome. And I'm actually surprised by that because I looked at your calendar Uh, of speaking engagements and thought that you were just a teacher of adults now. So that's great that you're still teaching kids. I'm able
1: to do it really – I really – I lucked into a position that's just amazing for my schedule – on uh, Wednesdays, uh, I teach in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents, and because the thrust of their their time there is about rehab, um, school gets relegated to one day a week for two hours a day. And so, you know, Monday is for science, Tuesday is for social studies, that kind of thing. So I'm their English and and writing teacher, and that's on Wednesdays. So I protect my Wednesdays
0: as much wow. as possible that's a pretty sweet gig and that's awesome what a powerful place to be a teacher at especially as you're talking about the power of failure for being in a rehab uh, center for adolescents that's amazing
1: it's also been you know there are a lot of people who say yeah yeah this is all fine and good for kids who have every advantage but what about kids who you know really are at risk of catastrophic failure and that's where my interest really lies now and where I think a lot of my um, my writing is going to be going for the next couple of years, I think.
0: Well, you know, that was something that I was thinking uh, yesterday as I was reviewing your book again. And I was thinking you talk a lot about helicopter parenting mm-hmm. essentially in mm-hmm. the gift of failure. and that's That's what part of the problem is, is we don't let our kids fail. And I kept wondering like, what about all the kids that, that are struggling with those things mm-hmm. that don't have a helicopter parent to prevent them from failing and are just failing basically all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and how does that impact them? So can you just talk a little bit about some of the things that you're learning in your current position?
1: Yeah, I think that the stuff that really tends to work well for exceptional teaching and exceptional learning It's the same stuff works for kids who have every advantage and are, you know, have the best teachers and have the best schools and the best, most attentive parents. You know, those kids need the same things from the people who are educating them that, um, the kids that I teach that have had a lot of adults not come through for them who have grown up in foster care, who have, you know, are self-medicating with substances because they've gone through, undergone a lot of trauma because with alcoholism and drug abuse, usually there, there's a history of some sort of trauma, whether that's abuse or neglect uh, in their past, the same things work for both of those populations and that really comes down to relationships and that sort of really deep connection. So in Gift of Failure I do a lot of talking about the equation for upping the chances that you can get a kid intrinsically motivated to learn and that's autonomy and competence, helping them feel competent and connection. And the the thing that works, you know, the thing that's I tend to hammer home a lot in gift of failure is the autonomy and the competence because kids who are overparented just don't generally get a lot of chances to feel autonomous or competent but really connection is the biggest most important part of the equation for all kids not just you know kids who are being overparented not just kids who are at risk of catastrophic failure and that connection can mean a couple of different things it can mean you know just that they trust us and we You know, treat them well and we show up for them and we keep our word and that we take time to get to know things about our students, but also that we make what we're teaching relevant to them in some way. And whether that's, you know, showing them that the math we're learning in this classroom actually has real world application or finding out what's important to them and helping them connect that to what we're trying to teach them in the classroom, making learning relevant as teachers, most teachers know is one of the hardest things we do. And one of the most important things we do. So, you know, just helping people understand that, that piece of it in particular, when it comes to kids at risk, I think is, is what's going to help us keep kids in school, keep kids, you know, believing that learning and education are the way that, um, you know, are the path to sort of succeeding for them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and that relevant piece is so vital, as you mentioned, but how do you, what are some strategies you use to figure out how it can be relevant Mm -hmm. to them? And that's a challenge because the kids in that situation are not thinking about school. And we do a lot of trauma informed stuff Mm -hmm. at my school and, and have seen great results from it. But what Mm -hmm. do you find in teaching To these students who are Mm -hmm. in a program that's a lot different than kids that are at school at school, there's still, you know, some hope if they're in a program, then, you know, they're, they're at rock bottom. How do you help it be relevant to them?
1: Well, I think, you know, for me, the first, the biggest hurdle for me, and actually it's funny, an article is just, I just noticed that it's getting tweeted all over the place today. And it's something I wrote a while ago and it's about the role of touch in, in the classroom. And, you know, these are kids for whom, Touch is something that is a really uh, it's 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 something that I can't tend to use with these kids. But then there's another added part of that sort of creating connection, which is understanding and, and relationships. And I, I wrote another piece about um, some research that a professor had done on how to establish really quick relationships with kids without having to get into really personal stuff because I also don't have time to get to know a lot of really, really personal stuff about my students. So one of the things you do is is you start talking to the kids and you just figure out what what's important to them. I do that a lot when I'm trying to figure out what they might want to read. I have a lot of kids who come in and say, no, I don't read period. Like not that they can't, but that they just don't. And what I have to do at that point is find out what interests them in terms of their hobbies. And then usually I go to the nonfiction shelf and try to find something that they want to read. But just that initial step of showing them that I do want to get to know them and that I'm interested in what they're interested in. One kid, you know, his interest was, <laughs> this was a really tough one for me. His interest was, was basically street fighting was he, found that the only time he really felt alive is when he was punching someone in the face. And it yeah. turns out there's this fantastic book that, of course, I'm going to just I, – I lent it to my dad because it was so great. It's it's about a – and I'll, I'll have to email you so you'll have the link to it. But it's about a professor of anthropology who figures out that he lives uh, – his office is across the street from an MMA – fighting studio, a mixed martial arts fighting studio. And so he gets really interested in the anthropology of why we fight and the history of why human beings fight with each other. And I brought him that book. Another kid said, the only thing I'm interested in is pit bulls. And I said, great challenge accepted. (laughs) And I found a fantastic book that I've actually now borrowed back and it's sitting on my nightstand. And it's about the history of the breed of pit bulls. And and, uh, so, you know, just finding out what they're interested in is the very first step. Because when I showed up with this book, this kid was like, A, wow, you listened and B, you cared enough to actually find this book for me that I said I might be interested in. And that for me is the very first thing I do in terms of making school relevant at all is showing them that I care about them as their teacher.
0: Yeah. And is that book, The Professor in the Cage, Why Men Fight and Why We Like to Watch?
1: Absolutely. How did you know that? Are you just Uh, a quick Googler?
0: Quick Googler.
1: (laughs) Yes. And it's a great book. I really, really liked that book a lot. And it's got a fantastic cover. It's a picture of a skull where the jaw is slightly displaced. It's really, really good. Uh, Awesome.
0: I think part of the fascinating thing about those stories is that you can't find these books that day, so no. there has to be time that mm-hmm. passes and It sounds like that's a powerful part of it as well that yeah you know you're just going along doing the school stuff, and then all of a sudden here's this book that you are fascinated by, and that we talked about a month, two months, however long ago it took.
1: Well, um, I have to be quicker than that because they're in and out of my classroom fairly quickly sometimes, either because of insurance or uh, because, you know, they tried to run and now suddenly they've been transferred to juvenile, you know, juvenile home. So actually I try to do that within the week mainly because I can lose them and I don't want them to think that I wasn't listening and that I was, I did, wasn't going to keep my word. So yeah, the, the timing can be really important. Just, you know, and when I was teaching on a daily basis, part of that also was, you know, keeping a list of questions on the front of my planner, I always had an index card with a list of student questions or things I needed to go back and address. And I would come in the next morning, and the very first thing I would do in, in all of my classes would say there was a question yesterday about whatever, I looked it up, here's the answer, or I asked so and so to look, look it up, what's the answer, because that just showing kids that you care enough is, I think, the most important thing way to get them to care, to get them to say, oh, wow, this is something that um, is worth investing my time in because if she's going to do that, then maybe I should too.
0: Yeah, that's that's really powerful. And, you know, those, those same tactics work for kids who are struggling, kids who are doing great, and mm-hmm. it's important to pay attention to both of those. You know, one of the things that I was thinking as I was reading – reviewing the book last night was in the end, you've got a lot of advice for teachers and parents. And one of the things that you talk about in the chapter about high school, mm-hmm. you talk about giving kids choice mm-hmm. and how important that is and how, if they have been taking French for years and it's, it's time for them to uh, make their own choice and they choose Something different, then you should just let them do that and let them possibly fail at that new thing. Mm -hmm. And one of my follow up questions to that is what about the power of sticking to something? Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me right now, I'm a dad. I've got a son who's six years old and he's already done dance and wrestling, Mm -hmm. t ball, soccer. And he tells me that he hates every single one of them. Mm -hmm. The only thing he likes doing is Minecraft. That might be typical.
1: Yeah, well, I, I actually tell a story when I'm out speaking about, about kids and uh, I was in a middle school at one point and I, I just out of curiosity, I asked, I broke in the middle of what I was doing and I said, just out of curiosity, if you don't have to eat or use the bathroom, how long do you think you could play Minecraft? And one of the kids who was really, I guess he was trying to suck up, he was like, oh, I don't know, like an hour. And the rest of the kids were like forever. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I think the answer is somewhere between an hour and forever. So you're not alone.
0: Yeah. So uh, anyway, when, when it comes time for kids to choose something, my fear as a parent is that my kid will never be good enough. And right. at something, at one thing mm-hmm. that, you know, they'll – there'll be a jack of all trades, a master of none, right? or whatever. So how do we deal with that?
1: That is a fantastic question. I think there's a couple of things to address. And one is that this false understanding that there's some sort of investment happening in a sport or whatever it is i get questions from parents all the time you know my kid's been doing soccer since she was like four and she's now 14 and she doesn't want to do it anymore but i just feel so inve- we feel so invested we've invested so much time so much money so much whatever and of our energy into soccer and if she Quits now, it's like it's for naught. And my answer to that is always, you know, what? (laughs) What do you understand your return on this investment is going to be? You know, the idea that she's going to play in college or she's going to play pro is so minuscule. So while I get the importance of like, you know, the stick to it of, you know, I don't want my kid to be a quitter kind of thing. Childhood has always been this place where you're supposed to be able to try a lot of different things. And when you talk about the fact that your kid has tried X and Y and Z and has not settled on one thing that is his or her passion, his or her, that something that I hate using the word passion because then there's this expectation that every kid's supposed to have a passion, which is crap. Um, (laughs) My niece actually mentioned wrestling. My niece is a wrestler and she is all in she is after it like gangbusters but that's after she did swimming for a while and she did this for a while she did that for a while and she's 10 so you know it's amazing to me that wrestling has really stuck for her and it's clearly something she's very good at she happens to have a natural talent for it because she listens really well and she's able to you know take what she's what coaches tell her and implement that. But that's because she cares. And if she hadn't, if her parents had said, well, you know what, you're a really good swimmer and we've invested so much time in this swimming thing, I'm really concerned about the things that kids don't get a chance to try when a parent is pushing them to do the same thing for a long period of time because they're quote unquote invested. I think there's this false fear that we're supposed to be raising kids who are going to be good at one thing. That they're supposed to, you know, get to high school and be particularly good at one thing and I don't think that's right either. I mean, high school for many kids is the first time they try a sport. It was for my son and my son tried a little of soccer, you know, he played like a youth you know, soccer in the, in the spring and maybe baseball or something, whenever they play soccer in the fall, you can tell him a huge sports person, soccer in the fall, you know, baseball in the spring and, you know, had fun with his friends, but didn't love any of those things. And it wasn't until he went to high school and tried track. He said, Oh my gosh, this is the sport for me. And now he wants to run in college. So, you know, I, I beg parents not to get sunk down into this trap of my kid needs to be, you know, good at something by the time they go into high school. I just don't think that that's, I don't think that's fair to do to them. And I don't think it's it's a reality that um, for much of history has been true.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a really powerful statement. And kids can, for those who are worried about that, kids can get really good at something in a short amount of time <laughs> yes. if they actually care about it, right? <laughs> so yeah.
1: No, and, and in fact, there's something about their malleable little brains that, In order to sort of model this growth mindset for my son, when he started taking guitar, I said, great, I've always wanted to learn how to play guitar. I'll try too. So we took back-to-back lessons with the same teacher. And it was a horrifying experience for me because I learned so slowly. I never actually got to the point where I could sing along with my own guitar playing because it took me so long to move my hand to change chords. And in the meantime, my son, it's, you know, has taken off and is now, you know, playing with a band or something, you know, because he's just he's gotten so good at it so quickly. And, you know, it's it's a humbling experience, but it's also great for them to see us go through stuff like that. But, yeah, kids learn fast.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the other concerns or fears that I hear is, as we're talking about things like personalized learning or standards-based grading or reporting is that there's some fear that if we allow the students to have more choice, then they're going to somehow not learn the quote unquote things that they Mm -hmm. should learn. Mm -hmm. Um, What's your response to that?
1: So I'm a huge fan of standards-based grading. And I think, um, you know, letter grades just don't convey any information at all and are fairly worthless. (laughs) Standards based grading, I'm a huge fan of though because I, I love the you know I love the idea of being able to uh, sit down with a parent and say, look, here's the list of skills that I would really love and and things your kid needs to master this year, and here's what they've mastered and here's what they haven't. Because for me, you know, when if I hear my kid is failing a class, that that conveys no information for me in terms of how I can help. So in a way, I, I think if we think about assessing kids and evaluating kids the way we always have. Then it sounds really, really hard to be able to check off whether they have learned certain things when we're giving them more choice. Because then it's like, oh my gosh, kids are all over the place doing all kinds of things. How am I ever going to know who's learning what? Well, if you're thinking about it in terms of checking off um, skills, you know, the way we've done it when we do our normal sort of, you know, teach, 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 multiple choice test teach 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 multiple choice test if we do in that kind of summative cumulative assessment it's it's really hard to do but if you look at what teachers at places like you know for example high tech high in the in the documentary most likely to succeed what they're doing is observing the kids as they go through things that interest them and allow them to learn along a trajectory that has been very carefully planned out by the teacher but that offers choice within that trajectory for the kids Um, I think there's a halfway place. And and the problem is the minute I start talking about, you know, giving kids autonomy, giving kids choice, um, you know, standards-based grading, people think I'm talking about like some kind of feral school where I I let the kids loose and they chase chickens around and I grade them on their (laughs) ability to, you know, have hand-eye coordination. And that's that's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm actually quite a traditionalist when it comes to teaching. I I taught at a very traditional um, middle school for six years, my last teaching job. Um, very classical based education. But within that structure, you can give kids choice and, and giving kids choices, what's going to hook them in and interest them in their own learning. So again, that comes back down to, you know, getting to know the students, knowing what they're interested in and showing interest in what they're interested in. Even if it doesn't sound like something that you find Academic, I think that there's a lot of kids are often exploring unknown phenomenon or UFOs or life elsewhere or that kind of stuff, which to us sounds like, you know, X-Files stuff, but to them is them finding their place in the universe. And, and so I think it's really important that we, we show kids that we think what they think is relevant um, has some importance um, to us and to the world.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree with you. And for me, as also an English teacher, really, as as I was teaching and starting to figure out what standards-based grading was, I was starting to focus not on what I needed to teach, Mm -hmm. but what the kids were interested in and how I could make my standards attached to whatever it was that they were doing and knowing the standards well enough to be able to say, Oh, hey, you just demonstrated that you know how to use a, a Greek <laughs> right. prefix correctly. Right. Boom, I'm going to check you off on that standard because I saw you do it in real life. And that really becomes powerful for that student. They're like, what I was learning? I didn't know I was learning anything.
1: (laughs) Well, and also that's higher level learning because you're not just asking them to, you you know, you feed it to them and then you regurgitate it. They regurgitate it back and then you check it off. You're asking them to actually use it in application, which is much higher order of learning than regurgitation. So, you know, yay you. And also, you know, the way we assess kids is screwed up too. I mean, if you're going to do cumulative sort of these high stakes summative, you know, teach, teach, teach test, it, you know, that doesn 't work as well for learning number one, and that what you 're talking about is more formative assessment, like okay, you may have six kids over here who are already there, but what about those other ones over there? Are you going to just give them an F and move on, or are you going to realize, oh, I have to actually use these formative assessments to shape my teaching to make sure that everyone 's at the same place before we you know either move on to the next standard or God forbid we 're doing different standards at different times and and the last thing I want to say about actually about that is that it's that what you just said about knowing the standards well enough to be able to identify on the fly when someone gets something, is the very reason that we have to give standards-based grading a little bit of time to work, because teachers can't go in on their first year and have this stuff so ingrained in their awareness that you can pick up those things on the fly. I think this is something that is going to take time for a particular teacher to implement. And so it sounds like you've had enough time with it to be able to manipulate the standards in your head and to know them well enough to identify it on the fly. But that takes time and having some patience with the process is I'm going to beg administrators to have some patience with the process of moving to any new system of evaluation.
0: Yes, absolutely. And you talked about summative versus formative. And for me, everything was formative until right. I put it in the grade book and then it became summative. And yeah. that was a much easier way to do it for me that every time i saw the skill that's when i'd put it in the grade book and that's what made it summative not that it was and everything was informing my instruction but that final piece was where i just gave the kid credit when that credit was right was actually due so
1: and that's so powerful for the parent because the parent comes in and instead of you saying hi your kid has a b minus you can say look look your kid has this skill this actual concrete thing that that next year's teacher will need to know about in order to move forward. It's such a powerful thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That was a great interview with Jessica and I'm so grateful that she came on the podcast and we've got more coming next week. And we're going to start next week with a question from a listener of the podcast, Kimberly Miles in Oregon. And she's got a question to ask that we'll start the next one off with. And in the next one, we talk about giving honest feedback and Talk about what really is important with failure. And I just want to add real quick about the standards-based grading thing that we talked about here, that really allowing students to have more control and choice in their own learning is incredibly powerful. And I've seen it so many times where it actually helps students do things that nobody thought that they could do. And it changes behavior and helps them be more successful. So just really want to reemphasize how powerful that approach can be. If you're not using it in your school or district, let me know. And I'm happy to help walk you through how to get some of those things set up. And I've been doing that for a long time, uh, pretty much my whole career, except for my first year. But starting my second year, that's when when I figured out what that was and started doing steroids-based instruction. Just a powerful thing. So thanks so much for listening. Again, uh, please share this with somebody who you think could benefit from it. And also, if you have a chance to leave a review in iTunes, that would be great. There's a link in the show notes at transformativeprinciple.org. Transformative Principal is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators by educators. Visit edupodcastnetwork.com for more great podcasts. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute.